The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla is leading the transition toward a 100% renewable energy future. And they're doing that by establishing the Path to 100 community to bring together thought leaders and industry experts with a goal. Discover solutions, raise awareness, and start a dialogue on how to achieve a 100% decarbonized electric system. The Path to 100% is committed to shortening the time it takes for cities, states, and communities to transition to renewables. Visit pathto100.org and become part of the discussion. We're also brought to you by Honeywell, a leading supplier of IoT solutions for mission-critical industries around the world, including energy. Honeywell Smart Energy helps utilities transform their grid operations through advanced solutions and targeted services from edge to cloud. You can find out more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, goodbye, 2020. Not sad to see you go. But even though this year brought a lot of outright bad stuff, it also brought a lot of positive, nuanced storylines in energy. And we're going to tackle as many of them as possible using suggestions from our listeners as a guide. And no, they're not going to be pandemic-related, not explicitly anyway. You can listen to our previous episode for our pandemic story picks. And I can't think of two better people to close out the year with than these energy and climate mavens, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's there in Arlington, Virginia. She's co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Hello. Hello. You sound a bit different. Well, I lost my dongle. Y'all will have to Google it if you don't know what that is. And um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm having to tape in an alternative way. And I just hope it sounds as um, spiffy as it usually does for Stephen. Well, we're going to do our best here. A fitting way to end 2020. A technology, <laughs> a technology failure uh, right at the end of the year. I think all Mac users know what dongles are. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not a Mac user, Jigger. No, I like which... my laptop to have like 17 different ways to connect to it. The simplicity stuff doesn't work for me. If we have to go and like re-engineer your mic settings, I have to go through like 30 menus. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, I'm just trying to keep you on your toes, Stephen. <laughs> Jigger Shaw is the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's there in Bethesda, Maryland. How are we doing? We're doing great. My son and I found the one 30-minute time slot yesterday where you could actually make a snowman before it's the snow switched to rain. So our, our snowman survived. It's coming down here. It's Thursday morning when we're recording, and we've got about a foot of snow outside, and I am soaked to the bone right now. I put down the shovel five minutes before recording and ran down here to to press the record button with y'all. And it's it's looking finally like winter here. That's like the best workout routine ever. It, it really is. I love it. So let's start off with a bit of news before we get into listener suggestions. Um, we've got some new picks for people who are going to be leading key agencies under the Biden administration, most notably former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, who is going to head up the Department of Energy. Catherine, uh, who is Jennifer Granholm and what do you think of the pick? Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, she's great. 
she's uh she's a nice person she's like got a lot of positive energy um which i think is important right now uh she's been great she's good on technology she's good on working with business i think she'll be a great leader at department of energy and since she's been a governor she understands how to run things i think that's going to be really important at doe because so much of doe is about running you know the nuclear program and everything um but i think she'll do really well for the clean energy side i mean she's out front as an advocate for renewables and the energy transition as anyone out there. So she seems like a really good pick on that front. She's also very accessible. I don't know how it's going to work out at DOE, but I've had conversations with her in the past, and she's just a very open, accessible person, which uh, I find nice in a public official. I also think she's going to put a really big emphasis on transportation, um, given that she was the former governor of Michigan, um, which, frankly, I think we've been sorely lacking, right? I think there's been this phone it in with the $7,500 tax credit stuff going on, and I feel like, you know, she's really going to be like, hey, how do we really decarbonize transportation in a way that's thoughtful and, and widely accepted, frankly, because I don't know that everyone's on the same page on how to decarbonize transportation. So a lot of people are feeling good about that pick. What about Gina McCarthy? She's been chosen as the national climate advisor. She was, of course, the chief at the EPA under the Obama administration. Uh, she is a renowned environmental lawyer and advocate. She knows this stuff inside and out. She was the architect of the Clean Power Plan and really helped usher that through uh, under the Obama White House. So Gina McCarthy as national climate advisor or otherwise known as the climate czar. What do you think, Catherine? Yeah, I'm super excited excited about that and it just shows the the level to which he is putting climate when they are able to convince Gina McCarthy to come back in after being the head of NRDC and um, not the least of which is I certainly love her accent. We're going to be talking a lot about cat cabin. <laughs> but I think it's great. I think she's great. Um, Brenda Mallory is being talked about for CEQ. She's the director of regulatory policy for Southern Environmental Law Center, a woman of color. I think she's going to be amazing. Well, just remind um, us what CEQ is for those who don't know the C acronym. CEQ is the Council for Environmental Quality. And it kind of heads up, uh, although G I'm not exactly sure what the structure is going to be if Gina McCarthy is sort of the climate czar, and I assume she's going to be um, heading all of the agency you know, cross-cutting initiatives. But CEQ is also that coordinating body, and it does require Senate confirmation. Gina McCarthy will not require Senate confirmation. Granholm will. And then, of course, the other big agency um, in play is EPA, which has still not been named. Mary Nichols was a was thought to be in the lead, but there have been some things about racial inequity at CARB that have now kind of risen. Um, Michael Regan, who's the secretary of the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, as now a, kind of a new entry into that that field of potential candidates for EPA. And that also requires Senate confirmation. Right. Just to step back, Mary, Mary Nichols was the head of the California Air Resources Board. She helped uh, architect the cap and trade system there in California. She's seen as a really capable person who understands the ins and outs of constructing climate policy. But a lot of the environmental justice groups who really don't like California's cap and trade program didn't like the idea of her as uh, Biden's pick. So she was derailed. And now the Biden team is trying to figure out who is the next candidate for EPA. Um, Jigger, what do you think about Gina McCarthy? I think she's going to do a great job. I mean, I do think that um, she's 
known as being very measured. And, you know, I think as we discussed with the Clean Power Plan, you know, sort of trying to figure out how to satisfy all parties around the table. So I think that I hope that she takes this next position as one that is actually pushing the envelope as opposed to, you know, also, you know, trying to find the lowest common denominator again. So, um, you know, like I, I like her a lot. I think she's been, you know, a great advocate, but I do think that in this time we need a little less of this, um, sort of middle of the road thinking and a lot more, you know, let's push the envelope all the way that technology can take us. And I think with all these women and people of color running the government, we're going to have much better outcomes for everyone. Okay, so let's go into stories of the year. We're going to look back at the topics that you all suggested. We did a shout out on Twitter asking for your stories of 2020. And again, you delivered. So we're going to tackle your suggestions, uh, technologies that had breakout moments or are maturing, raw political graft, the voices of people who've been shut out of the energy transition that are now getting their voices as part of it, uh, companies making major commitments, new ways of companies coming to market and um, you know hitting the, the public markets and changes in regulation. So it's going to be freewheeling here. We're going to keep it moving. We have a lot of topics to cover. I think this will be a fun way to close out a painful and surprising year. So let's get started with business. There were a ton of company announcements, both corporates outside of the energy sector and utilities. As the year started, it seemed like one announcement after another was you know, hitting the, the news wires. More than 1,100 businesses and 45 of the biggest investors are now committed to net zero by 2050. Companies with combined revenues of over $11 trillion say they are pursuing the day when they'll remove as much carbon as they emit. Jigger, what do you think about what happened in the the corporate world this year? Well, as you know, I tend to, you know, discount heavily the sort of announcements and pronouncements because I feel like they're an easy way for people to get credit for something that they didn't actually do. Um, But the thing that I have been struck by in 2020 is how many contracts are actually being issued. So when you think about all these companies that are making electric vehicles, they're actually getting purchase orders from UPS and Amazon and others, right? And I think a lot of these VPPA, virtual power purchase agreements, are getting signed, right, by all these big companies. And then when you think about the 24 by 7 initiative that you guys are, you know, featuring in the new podcast series with Google, um, you know, pretty amazing stuff that's happening there. Um, Microsoft, I mean, I think when you look at the um, request for proposals that they put out for carbon negative approaches that they want to start backing. Um, And then even when you look at Amazon's investments into lithium ion battery recycling and other things, like these are real tangible steps that people have taken. Um, One of the things I'm curious about is where Apple's going to sit in all this stuff. I think that they've done an amazing job of keeping up with everyone else. But I think, um, you know, I'm looking forward to their announcements and how they're differentiating from the rest of the pack. Catherine, what story stood out to you? Yeah, the the corporates were big. And I think those 
the the biggies like Amazon, Google, and Apple, and Walmart uh, can really change the situation and the supply chain uh, for everybody else. So that if we do get carbon risk disclosures, that that's that's going to bring everybody along, and there will be some models for how to do that. But one thing that was really interesting to me, I I had spoken this week a little bit earlier with the sustainability folks, the ESG folks for the Edison Electric Institute, which is all the utilities, and they're doing a lot of tracking too. So the utilities have a lot of net zero carbon goals, just like the corporates. And of course, they're kind of corporates too. Most of them are planning on a longer horizon, like 2050. So they're not looking at the Biden 2035 goal. And a lot of them are proposing to use natural gas, which of course will be online for decades um, in the interim. Certainly AEP, Duke and Southern, they're just the worst. They're, it's going to be forever uh, for them. Uh, and the Energy and Policy Institute has done some really good reporting on this to kind of track where the utilities are headed. Consumers energy looks to be doing really well by 2040. But the one that was that really stood out was NIPSCO, which is the Northern Indiana Public Service Company that is shutting down coal plants that are uneconomic and they're going to skip gas because they found that renewables and storage is cheaper. And so they're going to be over 90% by 2028. So they're even faster than the Biden goal. So that's pretty exciting. So watching the utilities, I think, is going to be um, next year's project. I wonder what Mike Pence thinks about Indiana being number one in decarbonization. (laughs) Well, you know, all of our renewable natural gas is being produced in Indiana, too, right, from the big dairies uh, that that are going over to California. So I think it's shocking, frankly, that Indiana is going to be the first uh, state to basically decarbonize, <laughs> like out of all the states that we're following. Um, the other thing I would note, which is not the same thing as this topic, but is that uh, Patty Poppy went over from consumers over to PG&E and, you know, I think left an extraordinary environmental legacy uh, in the promises that she made and the alignments that she did in Michigan. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how she wrestles PG&E to the ground, but, um, but pretty cool. So I'm trying to grapple with these utility commitments, the net zero commitments by 2050. (laughs) 2050, right? It's like saying, oh, I'm going to go on a diet and, you know, uh, in 2022, like I'm eating all my junk food now. And and then, you know, in a couple of years, I'll figure it out. I mean, we're now talking about a realistic transition by 2035. It's why the Biden team changed their platform. The research coming out of, you know, prominent analysis groups shows that we this transition can happen a lot faster than we thought. So 2050 doesn't feel all that exciting, even though this is significant movement in the utility corporate world. I don't know how excited I am about some of these goals. Well, remember that the goals are fairly useless. So let's just stipulate that. But I <laughs> well, think why that, are they useless? Why? Well, because if it's in 2050, right, what I care about is the integrated resource plan they're actually filing today and what they're doing in that plan today, right? So either they're proactive or not. But what I would say is, is that given that 75% or more of all electricity generation added to the US grid this year was clean, and will be for the rest of time, and, and is being accelerated because of these corporate PPAs, And I think that the federal government will make changes to the Federal Power Act that forces every single utility in the country into a regional transmission uh, sort of organization, right? Uh, You know, sort of uh, allowing corporate PPAs to pervade all 50 states and all the utility territories. They really have no choice. Like what will end up happening is we're just going to flood the zone with renewable energy. And then they're going to have to say, well, the way we make money is by rate-basing transmission, 
And then they're going to have to say, well, crap, we probably should plan with other people how that transmission gets built so that it actually has some semblance of, you know, like, you know, like that there's a plan in place for 2050. And so at some point, they just get boxed in. There's just so much stuff going on that if they're if they're basically just waiting for things to happen to them, then it will go badly for them. And so eventually, they're going to have to integrate all of these changes into their IRP plans, into their like, you know, 2030 plans. And it'll end up just being something that instead of them controlling the timeline, other people will control the timeline, but they will be along for the ride. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, The one utility that seems to be pretty much on the path in their IRP that they promised was Excel. And it looks like they'll get down to 80% by 2030 anyway. So that's that's good. I've been following that IRP process very closely. And there's been certainly a lot of outside groups putting pressure on them, but they're also trying to kind of create their own future. And, and I, I agree, Jigger, that's the only way they're going to survive uh, with their current business model. So on balance, Jigger, did we see just more exciting press releases or did we see real change in the corporate sector, both in utilities and elsewhere? Yeah. So I actually, this is the first year that I really believe that a lot of these promises started turning into contracts. Um, And that's why I think when we talk later about finance, why you're seeing these stock price increases, because a lot of people are seeing more uh, follow through, which means more contracts for these companies, right? So that... That part I think is is real. The one the one area that I would just highlight, which I think will be the the battleground for the next four years in this area, is going to be uh, DERs versus central station. Um, I think that in general, whether it's the trade associations or whether it's other things, the utilities generally make more money by building more transmission and rate basing it at twelve percent returns, and they don't make as much money in their minds from empowering consumers to do things smarter and better um, in their own homes. So I think that will be the big battleground over the next four years. Let's go into politics now. Two stories that were flagged by our listeners were the role of climate change and clean energy in the election and a scandal in Ohio. So this was the year that a candidate ran on a platform devoted 100% to addressing climate change. That's Jay Inslee, of course. And then when he dropped out of the presidential race, rather than fade away, his policy team and ideas stayed in the race and infused the thinking of the guy who was going to be sworn in on January 20th. It was also the year that the most brazen effort to kill clean energy in the country, in Ohio, blew up. We have a textbook case of power companies and state-level corruption, and we found that, uh, yes, if you are first energy, it looks like $60 million will buy you a $1 billion bailout of your unprofitable assets, but uh, you will be held accountable, or at least the, 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 the people in political power will be held accountable. So I want to talk about what happened there in Ohio, because it was a really big story that uh, shows just how cozy the relationship between utilities and lawmakers and regulators can be. First, to climate in the presidential race. Catherine, what do you think? Was there a significant change? Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons. One is, we've talked about this before, that climate impacts have really been hitting people right in their face and right in their pocketbooks. And so it's become not an issue of does it exist, but how bad is it going to be for me? So it's it's been front and center just physically for people. Um, 
And then it's also been such a great rallying tool. So a lot of younger people, a lot of people who've been doing this for a really long time, really got excited about this and created much more of a grassroots effort. And I think that got out a lot of voters that had not voted before, had not thought about this as an issue. And so climate remained a top issue. It remained one of the four pillars of Biden's platform. I mean, it really became um, a thing and a a political issue in this campaign. And I think that is only going to continue to grow. I think this was the first time in a major presidential campaign that that's happened, but I, I don't think that's going away. Jager, I know you have a slightly contrarian take, which is you don't think that a lot of the activist groups mobilize people for climate um, necessarily. It was very clear from exit polls that a lot of people who went to the polls or went to to vote really did care about climate. It, it shot up the priority list. But what did you think about the influence of that issue on mobilizing people to vote and structuring the conversation? Well, let me first say that your intro about like the first climate uh, candidate, I think that if you polled our listeners and what you meant, I don't know that they would have actually guessed Jay Inslee. Like that's the Who most. They, guess? they may have guessed Elizabeth Warren. They may have guessed Joe Biden. They may have guessed other candidates. Like that to me is the coolest thing about this election cycle is that even though, you know, I love Jay Inslee and what he did to catalyze these things, there were a lot of candidates who actually tried to differentiate themselves with climate. And and Joe Biden certainly mentioned it like in his sort of acceptance speech for the presidency, in his like, you know, for the nomination. And then after he won, like, I mean, he has doubled down and tripled down on it being one of the top four issues every single time. So I, I you know, I, that to me gives me the most uh, pride uh, in how far we've come is that Jay Inslee isn't the only person considered a climate candidate. Well, and and Jigger, I would have actually argued that Al Gore was a climate candidate <laughs> when I worked on the Gore campaign, and um, but it's just that everybody else hadn't come along. Totally. And then I think to your question, I'd say that these kinds of things get super personal, right? And so it is not shocking to me that the most important issues of this presidential campaign were number one, the pandemic and what it did to people. Number two, healthcare. Right. And what that and how central that is during a pandemic. Right. And then the environment comes in sort of number three or four, uh, usually fourth, I think, in most national polls, uh, with about 26 percent of Americans saying that it's, you know, like uh, one of their top three issues. And so that's fine. That is way, way better than we have ever been, right? In general, that this issue polls at like 9% of people put it in their top three issues. And so 26% is a tsunami for us. And so I think that's awesome, right? Like it, it, you know, I, and I do think that people are finally starting to understand that the way we bring prosperity to everyone in this country is by building back better, that we actually have to get constructing again, infrastructure. We actually have to do all the things that are required to do to decarbonize, which happens to create millions of jobs. A lot of listeners asked us to talk about the corruption case in Ohio. This is a story that has played out over years, but there were arrests made. There were people who stepped down. There were folks who were identified. And then we found out that First Energy, the Ohio utility was behind a lot of political spending to get a destructive bill in place a couple years back. Jigger, can you give us the TikTok of what happened in Ohio and then talk about what played out this year? 
To be clear, I don't even have TikTok on my phone, so I have no idea what you mean. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's a term of art for us in the news business. <laughs> so I will take you back to the good old days of 2007, when a young, fresh-faced person who worked for me named Colin Murchie, who's now at EVGo, um, worked closely with um, local environmental, environment Ohio folks to actually pass the first RPS in Ohio. And we passed it. It was fantastic. And Jay Goyle, you know, was a young, fresh-faced 25-year-old representative at the time, you know, helped pass it. It was fantastic, right? Roll forward so to, to sort of 2018, and Mike DeWine, the current governor of Ohio, nominates Sam the Dazzler Randazzo to be the head of uh, the Public Service Commission. Every single group in the United States that actually lobbies on behalf of renewable energy exited the state. They actually, in an unprecedented way, said, Randazzo continues to get consulting contracts from First Energy and other people that make him uniquely conflicted to do this job, right? And they actually just left the state because they realized that there was no way they were going to influence anything that he did in the state, right? Separately, First Energy is like, well, crap, our like generation unit is basically you know, bankrupt. It's got this nuclear plant, it's got coal plants, it basically just needs tons of subsidies. So they give upwards of $60 million to the House Speaker, who basically, you know, left his... That's Larry Householder. Larry Householder, who left his first speakership under a cloud in 2004, right? Like, so he came back to the speaker position where he was before under a cloud because people accused him of this kind of stuff back in 2004. C- campaign finance violations back then. Yeah. yeah. And so so now Larry Householders um, passes a bill called HB6, which basically is the most ridiculous bill that we have ever seen passed ever, right? It basically said, provide these specific assets subsidies, make the residential customers pay for it because God knows industrial customers don't want to pay for it. And at the same time, make sure that anything that could possibly reduce costs for citizens of Ohio, namely low-cost renewable energy, gets their legs cut out from underneath them so that they cannot be used to help anybody in the state of Ohio. And, and let's put that Frankenstein concoction into one bill and pass it. You could imagine everyone was like, what the hell are we passing? But Larry Householder was like, there's $5,000 in campaign funds for you if you pass this. There's 5000 for you. And so, and Sam Randazzo was in on it. And so, you know, so last summer, Larry Householder got raided by the FBI, charged. Um, you know, of course, nobody at First Energy got charged initially, but, you know, they did a cleaning house and everybody got their golden handcuffs package. And most recently, this last month, uh, the Randazzler got his house raided by the FBI because he was in on it, right? And DeWine is continuing to whine. He's sort of like, well, if it gets to my desk, I definitely think that we should, you know, like, you know, repeal HB6. But the legislature amazingly is like, the way that this bill was passed may have been fraught with problems, but we don't think that the bill itself is bad. We think we can correct the bill. So now what's going through the House as of yesterday is that they are saying, let us not 
charge the residential customers this extra fee, which is assessed in January, which, by the way, they missed the deadline. So they are going to be charged the fee, but they're saying, we'll refund it back to you, right? But they're not actually thinking at all about rescinding the whole bill and starting over. They're actually thinking about leaving it in place and creating a slight fix to it as if that's acceptable uh, with the taint. Oh. Technical corrections, oh Jigger. God. It's just called technical <laughs> corrections. <laughs> So Leah Stokes, who is a professor at UC Santa Barbara and a collaborator with me on a matter of degrees, called this in a Vox article, the worst energy bill of the 21st century, um, where they just explicitly took some some fairly good goals uh, that were going to save people money and dismantled them and then saddled people with you know billions of dollars in cost to keep plants open. Catherine, do you agree with that assessment that this is one of the worst energy bills of this era? Yeah, definitely. I, as Jigger was going through the TikTok, um, I was like doing the whiteboard animation drawing of the utility with all these dollar bills coming out of it. And they're going to various and sundry people. And then at the end is all these big black dark clouds coming out at the end. Um, yeah, it's it's bad. Uh, it also is not new. I mean, this is how utilities have operated for a really long time. Back, gosh, it was must have been in the early 90s. I remember all of the staff of the utility for which I was working, we were all taken into a room and we were told that if we did not contribute to the pack, that we would be fired, which I don't think you're supposed to be able to do. And I knew I didn't want to give to the pack because I knew who they were giving money to. And I didn't like those people who were making decisions in, in the state in which I was working. So um, it's it's not a new thing. And you look at a lot of other states, there's um, Florida, all the investor-owned utilities in Florida gave over $9 million this election cycle, mostly to GOP candidates. And now they're under investigation because of the lack of reporting and disclosure around that. But um, an Intergy continues to have pay people, actors and undercover participants in all these different stakeholder processes. I mean, the utilities have been doing this for a long time and have had a lot of money to do it. I think the difference is that we're, people like Leah and others are shining a light on them. Jigger, how do we square this with some of the movement we've seen with uh, zero carbon commitments from utilities? Um, we have talked about the fraught and sometimes corrupt relationship between utilities and regulators or policymakers like we saw in Ohio. How alive and well is this problem today? I mean, is it just a, an Ohio story or a former Arizona story, or is this like something that is still happening regularly around the country that we need to be aware of? Yeah. So uh, for those of you who want to learn more about the underbelly here, which has not gotten really any better in the last 12 months, um, there's a group called the Energy Policy Institute, which is Dave Pomerantz, and all they do all day is expose the crap that utilities do. And they literally, there's so much stuff that they have to tweet it out every day because they keep finding more stuff every day, right? For those of you who've listened to the podcast for a long time, Joe Daniels is, you know, one of my heroes. And he is showing that even without legislation, rural electric co-ops, municipal utilities, and large investor-owned utilities are rate-basing and continue to rate-base unprofitable coal plants and charging ratepayers billions of dollars every year instead of bothering to save them money. Oh, and by the way, saving climate emissions. And so, yeah, when you think about how I square this with climate uh, you know, announcements, they're blatantly political statements in most cases. Most people are basically saying, if I make this false announcement 
which I won't be around to implement because I'm going to have my golden handcuffs and, you know, like my big payout within four years. Like, will you just take a little bit of heat off of me? Like, you know, can I actually just get a pass for this integrated, you know, resource plan cycle so that I can move on with my life, get my big fat paycheck and, and, you know, let my, my, the next CEO like deal with the messes that I made. Right. And I think that at some point we all have to just start saying to people that that is unacceptable behavior in a way that is actually criminal right? Like this is not just policy, right? There are people's lives at stake and people absolutely die for every single day that a coal plant operates, more people die of pollution, right? And so people are actually saying it is okay for people to die instead of saving money for ratepayers and accelerating the phase out of these power plants. And, and I think that unless we get that stark and that clear, my sense is, is that people are going to continue to feel like they can play these shell games where they make announcements on this side, but then are continuing to do these really shady things on the other side and think they can get away with it. Let's go into another topic that many listeners asked us about, which was energy justice, um, environmental justice, climate justice. Uh, is certainly a huge topic this year. And ideas central to the Green New Deal got written into major policy proposals this year. So just a reminder, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez first brought that document forward in early 2019, Nancy Pelosi dismissed it. I think we were moderately critical of it on this podcast because it was such a short document and didn't really outline any specific policies. It was just sort of the tenets of what a Green New Deal should should have. Um, and those, those tenets started to make their way into the political conversation. And Joe Biden now plans to elevate environmental justice issues by allocating 40% of all clean energy investments to disadvantaged communities. And he's committed to creating an Office of Climate Change and Health Equity at the Department of Health and Human Services. And the Yale and George Mason University programs on climate communication surveyed people and found that the Green New Deal proposal has the support of about seven in 10 registered voters. Um, that's pretty remarkable. And when we had Leah Stokes on the podcast a while back, she was talking about the polling. And before Fox News gets a hold of this issue, people overwhelmingly support it. Of course, it goes through the media spin cycle and some of those that polling can change. But this is the moment when a lot of the issues of equity are making their way into climate policy for real. Um, Catherine, talk about how this played out from your perspective and how meaningful it is in true policymaking going forward. Yeah, the to me, the best example of that was the House has a select committee on climate crisis that had a two-year mission. Um, and, and in fact, I think they're going to be re-upped next year, which is really good, um, to put together a, a roadmap and an action plan for everything we needed to do to meet climate goals in this country. And so they had a bunch of different hearings. I testified, a whole bunch of people testified. Uh, they took all kinds of comments from people. And when they were writing it this year, they were putting pen to paper and putting everything in. They went back into every single aspect of that report and included environmental and racial justice issues. And a lot of that was because of the movements that 
were happening this year and and all of the deaths. And so they went back and looked at it with that lens um, in addition to greenhouse gas emission reduction lenses. And I think that to me was super important. And and then also Joe Biden having this as one of his four pillars to make sure that it is integrated into everything every agency does. I think those are big indicators. Now, that doesn't mean that the Senate and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, if he stays the Majority Leader, will will consider that at all. But it does show that from a real grassroots level and from the House of Representatives level, and I think a lot of senators are in the same place, that this has really become part of the way you think about uh, climate change, the way you think about the economy, and the and the way you think about about the impact of a pandemic, for example, on everybody's lives and how it is not equal. Three things seem to accelerate this issue this year. One was the groundwork on the Green New Deal, and then the work uh, by AOC and the Gang of Four to push this. The other was, of course, the death of George Floyd and the the surge of the Black Lives Matter movement. And the third was COVID and the extreme racial inequities and how people are being impacted by COVID and dying. And those three things elevated the conversation around, you know, the, the, the racial fissures in this country. And now that we're talking about building back better, we can start to address some of those problems in a, in a very real way. So Jigger, of those three things, or maybe any other elements, uh, what do you think was most influential in bringing uh, environmental justice, racial justice to the fore in the energy and climate conversation? Bringing these issues to the fore are things that, uh, you know, had started earlier, I would say, and then get reinforced, right? Remember, the reason why the carbon pricing that Jay Inslee was trying to push got killed in 20... 16, maybe, um, was because they thought that it didn't do enough on environmental justice, right? And so the Sierra Club actually, you know, came out against it. Um, So, I mean, I do think that this was percolating up, you know, before. And then I think, you know, and Van Jones and others, I think, had a big role to play there. But then I think it got reinforced just because of the horrific, um, you know, things that have happened over the last 12 to 18 months. whether it's Black Lives Matter or the pandemic. The, the thing I would say is um, still continues to be confusing to me. And I've spent, I don't know, probably, you know, at least 100 hours this year talking to people in very formal ways about this um, in, you know, webinars and Zoom meetings and all sorts of other things. Um, is I don't actually know that there's a clear set of talking points around what we should do about it. Right. And I and I, I do think that that part seems sorely missing to me is that we can all agree that there's been a lot of harm that's been perpetuated and done for a long time. And I think that's where we found a lot of common ground this year is, you know, in all agreeing that the harm is real. But I don't know that we've actually come up with any sort of consensus on what we should do about it. And that, I think, gives me the most pause. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um I do wonder about that. There have been some studies and reports, and I would highlight one that was from um, SEIU, which is the Service Employees International Union, and they did this in conjunction with Sunrise, but a a bunch of other folks, um, a a bunch of uh, foundations as well, to really highlight how do corporations, how does leadership, and this speaks not only to political leadership, but also to corporate leadership, 
How does racial discrimination from the very top impact everything in our society from, you know, it can impact public policy, but it can also just impact the economy. And so they did this incredible report called Equity in the Boardroom 2020. And they really kind of looked at, you know, corporate behavior and governance of asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard. And, you know, they're approving boards of Duke, which, you know, have zero people of color on on it, for example. They do come up with some ideas for how to think about this. And maybe it's not a complete solution, but really holding um, doing comprehensive racial equity audits for investment processes, stewardship activities, and proxy voting guidelines and decisions, holding boards and directors accountable for um, oversight of racial justice issues, and voting against directors who fail to meet those standards, and then also um, demanding companies in which they are invested to do the same. And I think that corporates are going to have a lot of impact in this um, entire process, just as they have on, you know, as Apple and Google have and um, Amazon have done on climate. I think that racial equity is going to be really important to have um, coming down through the corporates as well. And I think that is going to have an impact on the political side. So, we have some changes in the corporate world. It's still pretty amorphous in the policymaking world. What are the table stakes, Jigger? Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out, right? So I'd love to try to figure out, you know, when something passes the the Congress, like what has to be in it for us to believe that we've started to address environmental justice. Yeah, we can carve out 40% of whatever we want, but we need really careful definitions of what a frontline community is, what an environmentally impact a community is and what just transition is, uh, because they can all mean very different things. All right, we've got a bunch more topics coming up. But first, a word about our sponsors. We're brought to you by Vertzilla Energy. Vertzilla created the path to 100%. And this is a group of leaders and industry experts working together to identify the fastest, most cost-effective ways to decarbonize electricity. And doing this city by city, uh, across states, across entire nations. The path to 100% is made possible by Vertilla, a global leader in smart technologies and lifecycle solutions for energy markets. And if you want to learn more about the pathway to 100%, visit pathto100.org. We're also brought to you by Honeywell. The next generation of smart grid technology is here, and it's coming from Honeywell. Honeywell is partnering with leading cellular carriers to integrate 5G and LTE technologies into its energy solutions for smarter buildings, cities, and mission-critical industries. It's using cellular IoT infrastructure to help utilities develop high-speed, reliable, and secure networks. And its scalable and customizable platform makes it easy for utilities to build grid intelligence and help customers find new opportunities for efficiency and automation. Honeywell Smart Energy is delivering the future of utility connectivity. Learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. All right, we're on to finance now. And the big financial story of the year, which our listeners asked us about, was SPACs, the SPAC attack, the special purpose acquisition company. 165 times this year, entrepreneurs who wanted to take their companies public opted for an end run around the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they did that through SPACs, a tool that used to be rare, but all of a sudden is becoming much more common. Now, a quick reminder, um, instead of filing all this information about your IPO with the SEC, the SPAC basically creates a shell company, that, again, a special purpose acquisition company, 
And then people who are in the know go out and buy the stock of the shell company. And with that investor cash in hand, the shell company buys a startup or a series of startups. So in our space, there were two dozen of these blank check companies in 2020. Some of them include Nikola Corporation, XL Fleet, STEM, EOS Energy Storage, ChargePoint, and electric truck startup Hylion Holdings Corp. Uh, Jigger? Did you expect to see so many SPACs? And why is this happening now? Of course I predicted all these SPACs. No. Um, <laughs> I, look, I think that there has been a running theme since Cleantech 1.0 um, in 2007 that people were you know, endlessly debating around um, what the problem with Cleantech is, right? And Cleantech investing is. And I think that generally speaking, people agree that the biggest challenge is there isn't an obvious exit, right? Like the, some companies become publicly traded and other companies get purchased by um, strategics, right? And I would say that what's happened in the last few years, largely because of all these corporate decarbonization goals and you know contracts are getting issued, et cetera, um, is that both of them have come into their own in the last couple of years. And so whether it was all of the exits that occurred, you know, with Anji and Anel and others buying up these companies, or whether it's these um, SPAC uh, IPOs, well, I guess that's an oxymoron, so a SPAC or an IPO, um, you know, I think people are starting to feel like there's a real exit to their investment. And that then leads to a lot more people investing into uh, startup companies, right? Because they feel like there's, uh, a way for them to monetize that investment five to seven years from now if the company meets most of its goals. And so from that perspective, I think we have shown that that you know this sort of cycle that's had a lot of bumps in the road finally has some you know smooth sailing from you know concept, to a round, B round, C round, and then uh, going public. And so, so that part I think is good. The other thing I would say is that that this is happening because people really believe that these mega trends are real, right? In the similar way that all these people lost money on shorting Tesla, um, and folks have been long Tesla for a long time. Um, people, you know, have bid up Tesla's shares. You know, I think even Elon admits to points that he can't really justify, uh, but. Uh, they believe that this future is real, right? That that in fact, um, that in fact people will be driving electric vehicles. That in fact people will be decarbonizing their, uh, you know, natural gas supply chains and all these other things. And so that I think has led to a lot more uh, uh, strength in these stocks even after they go public. And you know, you haven't seen the stocks crater. Jigger, I have a question for you because I really don't understand this very well, which is, does this just give these companies more running room and resource to be able to prove out their business model? I mean, a lot of them still aren't positive, you know, aren't profitable, but does this give them just some more time to do that? Yeah, it's a good question. So SPACs and IPOs um, are really just funding events, right? They're not some sort of end point. And so the way a SPAC works is that the reason you would do a SPAC versus an IPO is because it gives you a little bit more time to meet all the SEC requirements and everything else. And it's much more expensive, right? To be clear, like an IPO, let's, let's say, costs 6% of money raised. Um, 
a SPAC can easily cost 10 or 11%, plus there's like warrants and this and that and whatever else. And so it is not cheap to go public with a SPAC, but you can imagine it's more straightforward. And if your stock trades up 200%, like some of them have since they've gone public, then you know everyone makes money all the way around. But as you suggest, this money, however much it is, 200 million, 500 million, some people did a pipe, which means that they get additional money raised beyond how much money the SPAC actually has. Like, So some of these SPACs have, let's call it $200 million sitting in the account. So that's all they can invest into the company when they, they take the company public. Um, but some of the companies need an additional $250 million, So then they do a pipe to do that. But like that money is all the money they get to meet their milestones, right? So whether it's ChargePoint or all these other companies, if they go back out to the market to raise more money, and haven't actually met these profitability milestones on the things that the public markets want to see, their stock is going to be decimated. And so they better take this money, this huge amount of money that they're raising, and use it not to like throw big parties, but actually to like shore up their business and make sure it gets to some sort of level of profitability or whatnot, just like Tesla had to do, frankly, in the last few years. So Jigger, you're our finance guy. Any other financial stories stand out for you this year aside from the SPAC attack? It's so funny that I'm a finance guy now. I got like I got onto this list last week, um, you know, uh, around like LinkedIn influencers, and they put me in the finance category. And I was like, <laughs> I started a company. I'm an operating guy. I'm an entrepreneur. But well, you're 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 the best among us to evaluate <laughs> contracts. Yeah, and I ain't a finance guy. <laughs> oh the my deal god! Flow. Who would have thought when I got my mechanical engineering degree that people would call me a finance guy? <laughs> but um, but no, look, I think that there've been a lot of big stories, right? So when you think about um, ESG and the prominence ESG has taken, or Larry Fink's letter and how important that's been. Um, I mean, I do think that. Wall Street investors in particular have started looking at companies and really changing their stock price via their growth assumptions, like we talked about this with Exxon, um, based on a future decarbonized world. I think they are now saying that this is a constraint. And if the companies have a plan to work through that constraint and become um, you know, part of the solution, therefore, you know, being able to continue to grow their business, fantastic. But if they don't, and they're doubling down and tripling down on fossil fuels or in, on, you know, carbon intensive processes, then they, you know, will have a reckoning. And so you see that with ArcelorMittal, for instance, which is, you know, one of the world's largest steel manufacturers, who, you know, basically said, writing's on the wall, we're gonna have to decarbonize, and they made a big announcement, right? And, that was not, you know, conventional wisdom just 18 months ago that they would make that announcement. But I think people feel pressured by their shareholders now to have a proactive plan in place and announcements uh, that complement those plans uh, to be able to be relevant in 20 years. On to regulation. Ton of listeners asked us about the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which had some key decisions and at the end of the year went through some major structural changes. I mean, clearly the big picture on regulation is the deregulation that happened through the Trump administration, but we've talked a lot about that. So let's focus on where regulatory moves actually pushed clean energy forward. Um, we discussed a New Jersey law that was the strongest EJ law in the country. You can listen to our October 16th show on that, which would change how industrial facilities, waste management facilities are cited. 
Um, there was uh, also some flagging on Twitter of zero emissions, heavy duty trucking rules, the advanced clean trucks rule in California. Um, so there was some interesting stuff on the state level. Let's take a actually let's take a look at the state level. Catherine, was there anything that stood out for you as particularly important or influential? Yeah, I think the ban on internal combustion engine sales is a pretty big deal. And in California. Yeah, California has said by 2035, but this is a global initiative. So the UK announced by 2030 and China by 2035. So, you know, California is is lining up to be part of and really part of changing the entire market and opening it up for zero emission vehicles. And and I think that is super interesting. And I think that's going to have a huge impact, on, especially on the US economy, actually, on what how we sell our uh, our new EVs into the global market. Jigger, what about you? Anything on the state level stand out for you? Well, I think one of the big uh, pushes from last year or the year before that I think is continuing to accelerate is this ban on food waste um, from going into landfills. And a lot of those folks passed the the law, but then kicked the can down the road to like 2023 to actually start implementation. And so I think a lot of what you saw this year was people grappling with what that really means and the renewable natural gas movement and how low carbon fuel standard credits apply, right? So you had LCFS expansions into Oregon and Washington State. Uh, this year, you had uh, most of Canada adopting a low carbon fuel standard this year. And so and because those grids are connected, it's actually quite easy to ship gas from Indiana to, to Canada. Um, and you also have a bunch of natural gas utilities who have petitioned their public service commissions to um, to pass 3%, 4% renewable natural gas standards um, for their, you know, renewable portfolio standards for their gas utility. And so I think this is a big movement that, that finally, like, really dug deep roots this year. And now you'll see a huge uh, expansion of these types of regulations, I think, over the next five years. Yeah, food waste played a pretty important role in my house this year. The vast majority of my meals were just scrambling to pick up what my daughter threw on the ground. <laughs> it's surprising how much you can fill your stomach with food that's just been tossed around the kitchen in the living room. This is why you have a dog, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, our dog has uh, a, a stomach issue, so he's allergic to most food. So I, I am the dog in the family. That's why you got a have a second dog, Stephen. No, but I think, didn't you actually have that meat that was in the, the freezer that took you like a year and a half to... Yeah, we had like 20 pounds of uh, elk meat yeah. that our dog became allergic oh, to instantaneously. Jeez. So I created slow cooker meals for myself and just ate uh, dog grade elk for half of the year during <laughs> lockdown. I think there's a bunch of studies that show that dog regulations on meat is actually higher than human regulations on meat. And so in fact, like, it's actually pretty good for you. Yeah, it's not bad. I looked it up yeah. online. They said, look, we, we cannot tell you that you can eat this, but we eat it. So <laughs> I felt pretty more, I felt comfortable with that. This is why I'm yeah, a vegetarian. Exactly. I'm glad I, I became vegetarian about 10 years ago. Catherine, what about FERC? A lot happened there at the federal agency. What were the storylines coming out of there? Yeah, so uh, 2021 is going to be the year for FERC 2222, but 
2022 will be the real implementation of FERC 2222. Um, Say that five times fast. Um, Yeah, there were some big decisions that came out. We had a really interesting commission. I think that Chairman Chatterjee was pretty masterful at making sure he was able to get what he wanted with storage and distributed energy resources um, bef- you know, in a way that he was able to get it all passed and teamed up with uh, Commissioner Glick to do so. Now we have a couple of new commissioners, so we have a full slate there. We have Allison Clements, Rich Glick, of course, was still there. They're the Democrats. And then um, Neil Chatterjee is still there. His term ends in June. I don't know. He said he'll stay, but we'll see what kind of other opportunities open up for him. And then the, you still have Chairman Danley and then the new um, commissioner, Mark Christie from Virginia. And he is very much going to bring the state perspective, the state jurisdiction. He's had a long career at the commission in the Commonwealth. And I think uh, it he will be an interesting and important addition to the commission. Now, when Biden steps in, he is going to reassign the chairmanship to um, more than likely uh, Rich Glick because he has seniority. Um, and then we'll see what happens over the course of the summer. But I think when you have the chair in a long one, um, political view, even though you may not have the majority, I think you'll still be able to get a lot done. Um, and all of the staff work for the chair. So that's really helpful because you can get a lot of really interesting work done. And uh, it's good. 2021 is going to be a big year there. I think uh, 2020 was a big year too. So um, FERC continues to be a really good uh, place for engaging. So we have a lot of international listeners who may not know those names or really, you know, deeply understand FERC. I mean, what kind of decisions were made that move the ball forward or what may be coming in 2021? Just give us a big picture of what they're working on or what they have worked on. Yeah, so FERC does a lot of things. They do transmission, right, uh, policy. So transmission has been a focus. Um, and, you know, transmission technologies, transmission efficiency, uh, transmission incentives. They do natural gas pipelines. So that's been something they've been moving ahead with as uh, approval of gas pipelines, which has been very contentious, of course, on climate issues. They've also, also talked about carbon policy. So, you know, how can FERC impact carbon policy in their decision making? And then also, just how do we allow participants in the electric markets? And that's where the storage and distributed energy resource orders came into into being, which was around, you know, how do we allow a lot of technologies to participate depending on what they're able to bring to the grid? And I think that the more participants, um, the better, especially on the zero emission side. The other thing that FERC does, which I think is really important, is a lot of these little minor small behind the scenes cases. And so like if you have a solar plant and you want to put battery storage in and the independent system operator doesn't really want to compensate you well for the battery, then you can petition FERC and say, hey, they're not following the rules properly. And like, I want to actually get grandfathered into this small exemption or whatever it is. And those are all things that are done at the staff level um, and is super critical because now that we're becoming really big, um, there are lots of these one-off cases where, you know, the renewable energy projects are getting slighted and not getting the full compensation that they thought they were going to be able to access because of administrative rules by the utilities or the investor on the independent system operators. And so there's a lot of this small adjudication that happens that we don't really report on, but is really critical to, you know, finance continue to pour in the space. And the last topic of our last episode of the year is all about technology. 
We got a bunch of questions about floating offshore wind, hydrogen, some of these super hybrid renewable projects that we were talking about earlier in the year. I mean, one trend is just that renewable energy projects are getting really, really big. Some wind parks that are under development are, have capacity that's bigger than nuclear power plants. Uh, there's a plant going in off the coast of Great Britain, which has really strong winds, where each turbine has the capacity to produce 13 megawatts. Uh, that is that is huge. And there will be 190 of those uh, in, in this one particular offshore development. So one trend is that you have more of these bigger wind farms going in offshore. You have a focus on photovoltaics, floating solar farms, uh, using excess wind and solar electricity for hydrogen production for potentially long-term storage. Um, and oil and gas majors are increasingly interested in developing these projects. So we can either slice these up individually or talk about them holistically. Uh, Jigger, what do you think about this trend that listeners have been paying attention to? Yeah, I'd say that my sense is I think I think our listeners are not really necessarily focused Be careful. on the right uh, <laughs> aspect of the trend. So I think we've just finished sort of a 12-year cycle where solar and wind have gone from, you know, pretty high costs to the cheapest costs in the world, right? And we saw it through the the lens of the Lazard, you know, sort of LCOE analysis that comes out every year. Um, and the lesson from that is actually like 50 years old. It's not new, but we never seem to talk about it, right? Which is this uh, learning curve theory, right? That when you manufacture stuff, as opposed to building bigger dams or bigger coal plants or bigger highways, which are all like custom engineered projects, when you actually manufacture stuff in a factory, like solar panels or wind turbines or electrolyzers or lithium ion batteries, then things get cheaper by X percent for every cumulative doubling of experience, right? So when you've built 100 units and you now built 200 units, you now have you know a 10% reduction in cost. And then when you've gotten to 400 units, you get another 10% reduction. 800 units, another 10% reduction. And part of what we're talking about here is figuring out what stuff that was made by hand before, but now can be made in a factory at scale is worth betting on by public policymakers, such that in 10 or 12 years time, it's going to get cheaper. So when you think about green hydrogen, for instance, right? I don't think any of us are saying green hydrogen is going to have some big technology breakthrough that's going to lead to um, much lower costs. All of us are basically saying that the technology is 60 years old, right? We've made hydrogen from electrolysis for a very long time. And the Bush administration focused a lot of money on hydrogen. And now... Plug Power, amongst many others, are in the manufacturing of electrolyzer business. And they believe that with every cumulative doubling of manufacturing experience, they're going to get an X percent reduction in cost. And so that by 2030 or 2032, they'll actually be able to, you know, compete with, um, you know, natural gas produced hydrogen, right? And so I think part of what we're talking about here in all of these factors, whether it's electric airplanes or whether it's new battery technologies, or whether it's um, you know electro electrolyzers, is that the public policy people are starting to become more aware of their role in supporting these high-cost deployments because there's a very predictable pathway to getting to cost-effectiveness in 10 years. So to summarize very briefly, what you're saying is that the learning curves in 
the these other sectors are going to follow what we saw in wind, solar, and lithium-ion batteries with the proper policy support. You you believe that we're, we'll see similar learning curves and cost curves? That that all scientists who've studied it for fifty years believe it. We just haven't really applied the learning curve theory to energy. We've only applied it to ceramics or to other manufacturing sectors, right? We like for whatever reason refuse to like do it as an axiom for energy. And I think now we're heading towards it becoming an axiom for energy, right? So all these technologies you start to say, "Wait a second. Is this something that can be manufactured in a factory? Or is it something that is a custom project that's made in in the field, like for instance, pumped hydro. Pumped hydro is a fantastic solution, but it is not going to get any cheaper because all it is is an engineering analysis built by Bechtel in ind- individual geographic locations or the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It's not going to get better with time. It's just what it is. Large-scale nuclear, same thing, right? Like it doesn't get better over time. Now, small modular reactors that people are looking at manufacturing in a factory like Oklo or New Scale. Yeah, you could see that cost reduction happening there. But for these large-scale plants where it's custom-engineered per facility, like, you know, venture capitalists are saying, we're probably not going to fund that stuff anymore because it doesn't actually benefit from this learning curve theory. So, Catherine Jigger pulled the oldest trick in the book. I like your question, but let me answer the question that I want to answer. <laughs> uh, very, really compelling points there, though. Um, but do you want to respond to anything that our listeners pointed out? Um, wh- what do you think are some of the top tech trends that you're following? Yeah, I started going down Jigger's rabbit hole there, and then I found other rabbit holes that my brain went to, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they're just so, it's like watership down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, long-duration storage I've always been a huge fan of, and this is one of those things which, you, if you can get it cheap enough, it can basically replace the footprint of any you know major baseload power plant, really. It would have similar characteristics. So part of what I think about is, are there things that can replace what we have, the, the characteristics and the services that the things we have um, do now in, in a similar way, you know, provide those, you know, firm baseload, I would say, which I don't think you need that necessarily in all situations, but long duration storage is looking to that. And then there's other, there's the other piece of just dispatchability. Like we just need technologies that can react very quickly. And some of those can be with big wind farms. They're learning how to be really dispatchable or with just making sure that our transmission lines with um, like dynamic line ratings or controls can just respond much quicker to the load on the grid. I mean, I see a lot of these technologies, some of them as being large, like the long duration storage piece, and then others just being kind of really interesting technologies around the edge that allow all of these other technologies that are now super cheap to be become dispatchable and to be able to leapfrog what we already have. All right. I think, Jigger, you get the final word here on this subject. Any other sleeper technologies or trends that you were paying attention to this year? Well, I wouldn't say that they're sleeper. They're, they might just be boring. <laughs> but um, I do think there's a number of technologies that are emerging from the European Green Deal that we should be following because the U.S. is almost predictably always 10 years late to the party. Um, but like, so France, the Netherlands, and Germany have really high feed-in tariffs for renewable heat. So a lot of like geothermal technologies have been modified to do... Um, uh, you know, heat applications. And, you know, there's a company called Ever 
that uh, our friend Michael Liebrick has, uh, you know, joined the board of. And there's many other areas like that, which I think are really cool. So my sense is you will see uh, a big push into uh, renewable heat technologies, uh, electric boilers, frankly, I'm, I'm really super excited about. Uh, there's a on-demand uh, electric boiler for uh, commercial applications that's manufactured in, in Illinois. Um, so yeah, so I'm pretty excited about uh, all of those technologies in that entire technology class because it's critical to cement and steel and all sorts of other industries. Well, here we are, final free electrons of 2020. Catherine, what is your final story or series of stories or factoid or thing that's catching your attention? <laughs> well, um, of course, I think a lot at the end of a year about what's going to happen in the next year and kind of what are the trends are. And, you know, I think we've talked about some of those trends, electrification, dispatch, you know, and dispatchability and flexibility, elect electric vehicles as part of that um, supply chain security is going to be a big topic circular economy people are finally in the US starting to use those words together so I'm looking forward to 2021 as being a really exciting year and having a lot of opportunities but in the meantime I also was looking at a report because I can't help but mention a report which NRDC's um, sustainable FERC initiative put out about MISO and MISO is the system operator for the grid in the middle of the country and they looked at a combination of things. One was what is the renew renewable potential in that area and the jobs potential? What are the projects that have been proposed and put into the queue for interconnection to become part of the grid? And then how many haven't? And like 30% haven't gotten built and are dropping out of the queue, which is such a huge loss of economic benefit, of clean energy, of jobs, like 278 wind, battery, and hybrid solar storage projects that were under development have been withdrawn from the MISO queue, which is massive. And um, it's worth looking at this. There's an interactive map that they have on sustainable FERC project that shows the, the impact of this. And then it goes state by state. You can really drill down into where those projects are. And this is something we have got to resolve. And I'm hoping 2021 will give us a chance to do that as they're doing order 2222. And the ISOs are really looking at how do we allow just distributed energy resources to participate in the wholesale markets. I think in some of those situations, um, you're going to have to look a little bit more holistically because this is not all about not wanting to get these resources on the grid. Some of them are just about grid constraints and not having enough transmission to add these projects in. So there's a lot we have to think about in 2021, and I'm hoping we'll have some venues to do it. So your holiday car that you're sending out is going to read, wishing you a more circular, dispatchable, interconnected, holistic, and flexible year in 2021. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> May all your MISO wishes come true. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jigger, what is your final free electron of the year? So predictably, I've got two. So I first wanted to just uh, congratulate my own team. We, um, we passed the first ever first-of-a-kind, off-credit um, financing structure for Hillsborough School District uh, on the on Tuesday at their school board meeting. It's the, it's the first-ever contract that can do everything from electric school buses to renewable heat to uh, solar to energy efficiency, and S&P and Moody's has judged that it will not affect the credit rating of the school district. Um, and so we're super proud of that. It took like two and a half years of 
effort to get that done. It'll be a, roughly a $400 million deployment. Um, so really excited about that. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, Zero Avia. Um, I don't know whether they're good or someone else is good, but like they raised $38 million from the UK government, Bill Gates, and then Jeff Bezos's um, uh, arm uh, as well. And they're a hydrogen-powered aviation startup. Um, and as we talked about before on the podcast, this is for all the short-haul flights, right? This is a 19-passenger plane. So it's all these like short-haul flights where you're really terrible on a carbon footprint basis because you're only going 300 miles and and most of the fuel is is burned like going up into the clouds and then coming back down, right? And And so electric works really well for those applications. And so I'm super excited to see that round of funding and it looks like they're going to have a commercial product by 2023. Well, this year I've done enough promoting of my own work, so I am going to avoid doing that and end the year with a list of my top podcasts of the year. So as listeners will know, I get the vast majority of my information and storytelling from audio and there have been a number of really cool projects that were launched this year. So if you're looking for something to listen to over the holidays, I have some good suggestions for you. So let me try to run down this list of things that stood out to me that are mostly non-energy related. Um, and I hope that you'll find some value in listening to these things. So the two, my two favorite episodes of the year, one came from the Gimlet podcast, Reply All. It's called The Case of the Missing Hit, where uh, a person cannot remember the name of a song that he has stuck in his head. And the team goes to track down this song that no one can seem to find. And it's like one of the most delightful episodes you will ever hear. It's made the top lists of you know, most of the, 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 the podcast aggregators, um, and this, it hit right when lockdowns were happening and everyone was real down and out. So it was a perfectly timed episode. The other one is environmental related. It's from the, the New Hampshire public radio podcast outside in, um, which is a really fantastic show. And they had a, an episode on the history of Massachusetts versus EPA telling the kind of human story on how that legal case came together. The two podcasts that I really loved from the New York Times were Nice White Parents, which was all about the gentrification of schools, and I think really did an interesting job of unpacking like w what whiteness is um, and all the conflicts and complexities that play out in schools as like more white people move into inner city schools. Uh, the other one was rabbit hole from the New York times, which was a limited run series as well on the YouTube algorithm and how it's created, um, influence people and push them toward extremism and sort of what is wrong with the algorithms that guide people, particularly in politics, just an extraordinarily good show. One that really stood out for me, um, was a show called back from broken, from Colorado Public Radio, all about people who have dealt with uh, addiction and really hard times and very appropriate for 2020 when so many of us are going through uh, difficult moments and trying to figure out how we dig out of dig out of them. Um, I, it's just really inspiring stories about people who have been in at the absolute bottom and worked their way back up. Um, a business podcast that I absolutely love that is directly COVID related is called Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism from Slate. They look at the backstories of all these uh, companies that have either been 
um, helped or hurt by COVID. And there are so many really fascinating brands with rich histories that have been you know, have evolved because of the pandemic. And it's like one of the best business podcasts I've ever heard. So that's Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. The Atlantic dropped a podcast called Floodlines about what happened during Hurricane Katrina, which is just a haunting and beautiful piece of storytelling that I think our listeners will really enjoy. Uh, So those are some of my favorite shows of the year. And I think listeners will really get into those. Those are um, awesome. That's an awesome list. I did. I have listened to um, Nice White Parents and Rabbit Hole. Those were both great. Well, I hope that whatever you're listening to, we are in the mix. And we are so grateful for all of you for sticking with us over this very difficult year. Jigger, hope your year ends well. Me too. I have to say. <laughs> it's been, it's been a, a roller coaster of a year, but I really want to thank both of you for your friendship and and for all of the listeners out there who, you know, frankly, have been through it with us. And so I wish everyone a better 2021. Yeah, we've ridden through a lot together here. Yeah, no kidding. I, I appreciate being uh, having you all with me with us and Ingrid as well, who is always on our calls. We'd be nowhere without Ingrid. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Ingrid uh, comes to us on the West Coast. And so she starts off very early in the morning and she, it's basically pitch black and she looks like she's in the witness protection program. And then slowly over the course of the episode, the light from her window comes in and the, it glints off her face and it's just a really beautiful hour watching Ingrid evolve. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for all your work, Ingrid. Catherine, I hope you have a wonderful end of your year. Thank you so much. You too. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts, and I am the executive producer. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Really, we value your listenership. The show has grown by like 30% this year, so you all are tuning in despite the changes in behavior and in our lives and the disruptions that we've all faced. So thank you for sticking with us. And, of course, if you want to help us out at the end of the year, give us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or share your Spotify wrapped in review on social media if you're listening to us there. We will talk to you in 2021. Enjoy the rest of your year. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. 